You didn't tell them about riding on mules. Oh, yeah. So we are going to visit the Citadel. Actually, they have on the, in the city of Capetian up on the high ground there, there's the best-kept fortress citadel from the colonial era in the entire Mediterranean. And so we're going to go, but the way we've got to get up there is riding on donkeys. So I asked Cindy to take pictures of Mark and Kevin on donkeys. Yeah, right. And we ask you to pray for the donkeys, because that's right, yeah. <laughs> I want to read an email. We've been praying for uh, Tim and Marie Wood. Many of you know them. They're part-timers, half the time here, half the time in Ohio. And uh, she's been diagnosed uh, with very, very serious stage 4 cancer. And so uh, she's on uh, treatment for it now. And uh, they're not really far enough along into it yet to have a diagnosis of how it's working. However, he wrote an email, and I'm going to read part of this to you, just to can you bring you up to speed. Um, he's talking about Marie. <clears throat> she went to a refit dance class tonight. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds like something I wouldn't enjoy. She went to a refit dance class tonight and lasted the whole class, although not at her normal intensity. This has been part of her life for a long time, is to be involved in workout classes. So all things considered, things are going pretty well. We miss all of you. Good words, aren't they? We miss all of you and hopefully we will be able to come see you after her next appointment on February 14th. We will see. Now listen to these words. This is what suffering does to you. Our main strategy is to take one day at a time and enjoy it as much as we can and trust God for the future. Are those good words? Those are good words. Thank you so much for your prayers and support. Marie has gotten a number of cards from church members and other friends. Thank you again. God bless you. We hope to see you soon. We're going to stop and pray for them right now. Father, we, we lift up Tim and Marie to you. Lord, we, uh, we know of your goodness. Not only do we just believe it by faith blindly, but we have experienced it individually and as a church. We know of your compassion for us. And Lord, I, uh, I pray specifically for Marie that you would do whatever it takes. How you do it is up to you. I just pray that you would do whatever it takes to restore her to full health. Lord, um, he said, um, to die is gain, but to remain with you is much better. We have work to do here. And they have played such a vital role in our church and our community. So God, we, we ask sincerely, we plead, we beg on their behalf that you would do whatever it takes to restore her to full health. Continue to protect their marriage and watch over them. Keep them safe. Thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness because they are such an example and a joy to us. And thank you for listening to us. Thank you for us being important to you. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in a series. We have uh, Advent, I mean, uh, Lent starting pretty quickly. In fact, it starts a week from this Wednesday. Uh, we have Ash Wednesday. If you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service, I'd love to invite you to come. It's from 6 to 6.30. It's only a half hour here at the church. And it's a time when we stop and we really prepare our hearts for what's coming, 
for the series of Lent. The whole season of Lent, we're going to be focusing on the cross. So for these four weeks heading up to Lent, we wanted to prepare you, and we have a series called What, uh, what Went Wrong? What Went Wrong? Why the Cross? Why do we even need the cross? We've been taught as good Western Christians to think of the cross in terms of individual, especially Americans, individualized atonement, which is true. I never want to take away from that. That is true. But the picture is far, far bigger than that. So we want to ask the question, what did the New Testament author see that we need to see? Or another way of asking it is what was left undone at the end of the Old Testament? At the end of the Old Testament, there's a question mark. Today we're going to look at perhaps the saddest day in human history. That's the day that God packed his bags and left. I'm done. See you later. Enjoy life. It's the day that God walked away. That's what we're going to do. What if sin is much more than simply the breaking of a moral code? Which is true. It is that. Well, what if it's far more complex and bigger than that? What if the cross has something to do with all of creation and not just your individual sin? And that's what we have to look at. So far, in the first two weeks, we looked at the, the corruption or loss of our core, uh, our core vocation, if you will. We are true humans. And that's what our vocation is, is to be a true human. We bring honor to the Lord by being humans and by being faithful humans. A tree brings honor to the Lord. tree. So in Genesis 1, God says, let us make humans in our image so that they will manage and steward all of creation. We abandoned that. We gave it up. You see, we were supposed to worship God and enjoy fellowship with him while we oversee everything in creation, including each other, encouraging each other. And what we did instead, and we looked at this last week, is we began to worship the creation. We began to create idols. In the ancient days, it was idols in the form of birds and reptiles, uh, things like that, which you still find in many third world countries, especially Hindu countries, Buddhist countries, African countries, things like that. We don't have idols sitting around. Uh, we have something far more subtle. We have greed. We have pornography. We have significance. We have position. We find ways... We're no different than the ancients to replace God with something more important to us. And that's called idolatry. So I argue that sin's two devastating results were the loss, the corruption, the distortion of our genuine humanity, what we're made for, and idolatry, which leads us away from fellowship with the Lord. That's the destructiveness of sin. It corrupts us. So when we read technical language, for example, in Paul, we throw language around all the time in the church. I love it. Without really always understanding it. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. What does that mean? What it means is that we are being slowly transformed into what we were created to be as true humans. Because Christ is the true human. So as we move toward Christ, we become more generous, more loving, more compassionate, more sacrificial, more caring. 
That's what we were made to be. That's what we lost at the fall. All the reformers wrestled with this question. And as we move toward Christ, we're being transformed into his image. That doesn't mean we're becoming like, uh, we're becoming a God, as some religions say. No, we're becoming a true human. Our vocation as human, as true humans is being restored. So today, what I want to talk about is another devastating impact of sin, and that is the loss of presence, the absence of presence, God's departure, the loss of glory. God's personal presence forms the backbone of the Old Testament story. And by the way, it's our story as well. Can you picture just for one second, we enjoy being here singing, laughing, dedicating children, uh, watching our children run all over the place. We enjoy that, don't we? We love it. Can you imagine walking in here as a group and God was not present? How devastating that would be if he did not show up. We don't know what that's like. As Christians, we don't know what that's like. And we praise him for that because that will never happen again. But it did happen. It did. And so the devastating effects of sin eventually led God to pack his bags and walk away. And that's what we're going to take a look at. The Bible begins, for example, with God's presence in the garden. He's talking to Adam, and he makes Adam and Eve. In fact, when Adam sins in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what do we find God doing? He's walking in the cool of the garden. Adam, Eve, where are you? Where'd you go? I came to find you. Where are you? Personal presence. God personally called Abraham and appeared to him on several occasions and talked to him as a friend. Made a promise through him which is part of the backbone of the whole Bible. Through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. We're going to see in just a moment how that impacts our understanding of God's presence and glory. God personally appears to Jacob. Remember Jacob? He stole his brother Esau. He stole his birthright. Not only did he do that, he deceived, he deceived his father into thinking he was Esau so he would receive the blessing. The blessing was the basic passing on of all the inheritance and the rights of the family name. It's a legal transaction. Once done, you can't undo it. And he tricked Isaac into stealing his brother's blessing. So his brother says, I'm going to kill him. As soon as Isaac dies, I'm going to kill him. And so he takes off. And he runs into exile. That's a word we're going to be using all throughout Lent. He runs into exile. He runs away from his family and culture to a foreign land. On the way, he has a dream, a vision, if you will. Um, he sees a vision of a ladder between heaven and earth in Genesis 28. And angels ascending and descending. He recognized that he was sitting in God's presence. And so he named the place beth Bethel, Bethel, house of God, Bethel. I have just been to the house of God. That's what he names in Genesis 28. The beginning of the Exodus, Israel is enslaved, right? Uh, with Egypt. And so God comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush. A personal presence of God appearing and said, I have listened to my people. I've heard they're, they're groaning. I've not forgotten them. I've come back to rescue them. That's what the word we talked about when we use the word saved. 
He, I came back to save them, to deliver them, to rescue them. And in the middle of that experience, Exodus 3 and Exodus 6, he gives us his divine name, his personal name. You see, the gods of the ancient world never disclosed their names. That was secret. You had to know the secret handshake. Okay? Nor did they ever explain what they wanted. And so the people lived in what we technically call the superstitious, superstitious mindset. They lived in fear of the gods because they didn't know what the gods wanted. They had to divine or figure out what it was and what their names were. But our God said, let me tell you what my name is because I care about you and I love you. So God's presence, there he is again. Hopefully you're getting this idea that God is present everywhere we look in the Old Testament. All throughout the wanderings, God was continuously present with his people day and night. How did that happen? How was he present with them during the day? Remember? A cloud, a pillar of cloud. How about nighttime? Fire. Pillar of fire. And so throughout the entire wanderings, they never, ever were without God's presence. Never. Even when they sinned, in a very shocking way, by committing a golden, uh, by building a golden calf. It's one of the all-time great stories of the scriptures because it reflects a picture of a parent. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And so while he's up there, uh, they're wondering what to do. They want to worship this new God who they don't know anything about. It. They don't have any of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. They haven't been written yet. Okay, all they know is what they took brought with them from Egypt. So they managed to swindle Aaron, talk Aaron into building a golden calf. So if you read the the text carefully, Aaron says he builds a calf and he says tomorrow we will get up and worship Yahweh, the God. That, they're doing what the only thing they knew to do, and uh, God wasn't very happy with that. So here's what God does. This is one of the stories that just makes me smile because it's excellent parenting. He set up the nation of Israel, 12 tribes, four on each side, and the tabernacle or the tent of meeting was supposed to be in the center, signifying that God's presence lived with us in our midst. And God says, yeah, well, because you did that, I'm not going to go up with you to the land. And so he and Abraham, I mean, he and Moses have this argument back and forth, and God kind of, Moses kind of gets on his case and says, hey, they're your people, they're not my people. Why are you dumping us over? You know, uh, you're the one that, 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 that decided to rescue them, and you want to give up your name just for the sake of your anger, and so all the nations are going to laugh and say, see, you could even keep your own people. And God says, okay, all right, I like that. He, he baited Moses, I think, into this argument. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. So here's the nation right here, and God takes his tent and he moves it out on the horizon. The nation's over here. God's over here. So whenever Moses met with God, he had to trek across the sand to get over to here. And the Bible tells us in this story, I'm not going to read it, but it says whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the Israelites stood at the entrance to their tents watching. And the pillar would come down and speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Okay? This is a time out. It's perfect. He's communicating to his people, I don't like sin. He didn't leave them. 
Just like you don't leave your children when they sin and you put them in a timeout. They're here. He's over there. It's a fantastic story. Some of you have heard me talk about Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelophehad, the five girls, the five young women. They're fascinating. Because the inheritance laws, God gave them on the chapter before, he said, here are the inheritance laws. Uh, All the land, when you get into the promised land, all the men here get land and their families. And if the man dies, the land passes to the sons. And if there are no sons, it passes to his brothers. So these five daughters of Zelophehad, it says they marched through the nation, through all these tents, through the leaders of Israel, across the desert to the tent of meeting. And they said to Moses, this is not fair. We're women. This isn't fair. So Moses, being the brave man that he is, says, "Uh, I'm going to ask God about this one. (laughs) And God says they have a valid case. So we're going to change the laws. They haven't even carried out the law yet, and he's already changing it. And what he says is, okay, if the man dies, the land passes to the sons. If there are no sons, it passes to the daughters as an inheritance. That is a legal code, a legal standing. All of a sudden, we have the earliest case in world history of women being given standing legal standing. The land is now theirs to do what they want with. Fabulous story. The nation's here. God's there. He never left them. So even in spite of their their shocking sin, he doesn't walk away. He still leads them to the promised land. Then he builds a tabernacle when he moves back into their presence, which is now in the center of the nation. And the tabernacle, all the details in Exodus on the tabernacle are very detailed. You can read them. They're repeated twice. He wants you to know it's important, this house of his that he's building. But when the tabernacle was completed, I want you to read with me what happened. It's in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. The very last two paragraphs of the book of Exodus. Then, they just finished building the tabernacle. Then the, the, uh, the cloud, that's God's presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not even enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He was very present with his people. In all of the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they'd set out. All right, it's time to pack up. The cloud lifts, let's pack up and go. They would set out until the day that, uh, that it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, and in, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. The Israelites knew that God was present with them. They never had to worry. They also needed to be aware that he was always watching. Like a good parent. Always present. But in the tabernacle, there's one item of furniture that becomes very important later on in the New Testament. I'm just going to introduce it. Uh, I'm going to leave the question mark hanging for you until Lent. It's the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was a very special piece of furniture. It was a box. Basically a box that contained the tablets of the law. 
the covenant between God and Israel. We're going to read from Exodus 25 in just a second as we talk about it. The Israelites kept this box, and inside this box, they kept things that symbolized the personal relationship, the personal union between God and them. So you have Aaron's uh, uh, staff that budded, right, um, during... Uh, when he went to the Pharaoh, and other things, symbols that pictured God's presence with them. That's what they kept in the box. The box was above all, above all else, the meeting place where God would meet with his people. This is Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. Make an atonement cover. This is a technical term which we're going to come back to during Lent. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. So you got this box with a cover, these two, these two creatures like angels, okay? Make one cherub on one end, make the second cherubim on the other end. Uh, make the cherubim of one piece at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover, and they are to face each other looking toward the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put the ark in of the uh, Put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. God made a promise. I will take care of you. Put those in there so you don't ever forgive you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim uh, that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This is the place where God would meet with his people. You have the holy place, the most holy place, the ark where God would meet with his people. He's teaching them something with this. On the day of atonement, which only happened once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place and offer a sacrifice at the ark for the entire nation. You see, God's intention to meet with his people at this place provides the context for the entire sacrificial system. Later on in the temple, it was the same thing. You brought, bring whatever sin offering, Thanksgiving offering, peace offering, whatever you're bringing to your God, you bring it to the temple. The priest would take it, and once a year, the high priest would take it to the most sacred place where God dwelt. The Ark of the Covenant. And then he would overlook the sins of the nation. And then God does the unexpected. He does what no other God's ever done and surprises everybody. When David, we're going to jump way ahead now, when David was on the throne and he began to reflect how God had blessed him, he had brought stability to the kingdom. The kingdom was now glorious, a very large kingdom, very powerful kingdom. They had rest on all sides. David decides to build a house, a temple, because all they have is a tabernacle. It's a tent. He's going to build a permanent house for God. So he goes to the prophet Nathan. Nathan says, great idea, do it. So God comes to Nathan in the night and said, no, 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 no. No, no, no. David is not going to do it. Go tell him he shed too much blood. He shed too much blood. He's not the one to do it. So God instead reveals two things. Your son will build me a house. But David, I will build you a house. That is unheard of. Unheard of. Every God expected you to exalt them 
And our God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. Listen to these words in Second Samuel 7. You can follow along. Verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and, the rest, and you rest with your descendants, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Second Samuel. God provides very little details here about how he's going to do it. But all of a sudden we have this new surprising twist in the story. God is going to provide a house for David. So Solomon goes on and builds the house. Okay, He builds the temple. Then in 1 Kings, we have the dedication, the completion of the temple, and the dedication of the temple. And I want you to, re, to, to look at what happens. De- Solomon dedicates the temple with sacrificing thousands and thousands of animals. Thousands and thousands. All this pomp and celebration. And here's what happens in 1 Kings 8.10. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud, there's God's presence again, filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not even perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's presence is still there. He has not left his people. Solomon understood that God's presence would be the very uh, reason, the very magnet, if you will, which would draw the nations to him. The promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. He understood that God's presence is what would draw the nations. Right in the middle of the same chapter, in his great prayer of dedication, verse 41, here's what he prays. He's praying to the Lord in front of all the nation of Israel. As for the foreigner, you could say as for the nations, as for the people who are not Jews, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray to this temple where you live, hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house that I have built bears your name. He understood. He understood that it was the very presence and glory of God that would draw the nations. Got it. He figured it out. This temple And Solomon's mindset became the place where heaven touched earth and God would meet with his own people. However, however, Israel began to move further and further into sin. They began to rebel. They began to develop more and more idols. They began to turn away from God. They did the very thing that uh, all the other nations did. They turned away from the Lord. As they moved further into sin, God gave dire warnings about what would happen. The prophets, all the prophets began to predict that Israel would be sent into exile if they continued. God is going to kick them out of the land. That was the promise at the end of Deuteronomy. If you obey my commands, I will bless you. If you don't, 
I'm going to kick you out of the land. And I'm going to pack my bags and walk away. Ezekiel goes so far as to say that the temple can only be destroyed if God's presence abandons it in Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel 10, verse 18. This is in a vision, and he's standing there on the banks of the river, watching God leave. The glory of, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped just for a moment above the cherubim. I don't know what he felt. This brings tears to my eyes. He said, you've gone far enough. So he's, the, the glory of the Lord halts over the temple threshold just above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings, rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord was above them. And if you read the rest of it, the glory of the Lord left. And he never came back. Can you imagine the faithful remnant watching that happen? He left and he never came back. Right after this, Babylon comes in and destroys the temple. Israel goes into exile. The unthinkable has happened. God left his people, departed, and let them be crushed by another nation, just like he promised, and sent them into exile. So this raises the question, when does God's presence and glory return? You see, Israel understood from that moment, the faithful understood that in order for God's presence and glory to return, sin would have to be forgiven. And we don't know how that's going to happen. The writings of the time are wrestling with that question, but the Old Testament doesn't tell us. Here's the big question mark. How does sin forgiven. This is a message of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, the later Psalms, many of the prophets. The exile would not end until sin was forgiven. Only at that point would the exile come to an end. Now, at the end of the historical Old Testament, which is Ezra and Nehemiah, the people are back in the land, but it's only a small, small, small group. They built a new temple. We call that the second temple era, the second temple period. But the glory of the Lord never returned. They symbolized the glory of the Lord with candles. But God's glory never reappeared. And God went silent for over 400 years. That leaves us with the big question. Why do we enjoy God's presence today and what did he do? Hopefully by now, uh, you get the picture that sin is far bigger than you're breaking a personal code. This is all of God's redemptive plan. All of creation is faced with this problem because the fact that God's glory never returned meant that sin was not yet forgiven. It wasn't forgiven. So the Old Testament ends with God's silence. His presence is still not returned. 
His glory is no longer in evidence. Sin has not been forgiven. And the exile is still ongoing. That's where the Old Testament leaves us. How on earth did God reverse it? Oh, it's easy to say to cross. The answer to every question is Jesus, right? No, it's far more complex. It's far more complex than that. Because what Jesus had to accomplish is far bigger than your personal atonement. It's his return to his creation and the spreading of his glory among all the nations. We're not going to get to that till Lent. Welcome to Lent. Father, thank you for your goodness. We're sorry that we're sorry that we are so sinful that you had to leave. We kicked you out of your own house. And uh, for that we are we are saddened. We can only imagine what it would have been like to be there. Thank you for being so generous with us, for not forgetting us, for remembering your promise and for loving us. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to take the offering. And remember, as I say all the time, thank you for your generosity. When you, put, when you decide to give money to the Lord's work, whether it's here or elsewhere, make it an act of worship. That's part of that step where you are doing what God created you to do.